Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thank you so much for sharing out this podcast and letting people know about what we're doing here at The Mission Driven Mom, writing reviews and all that good stuff. We get to dive into part two today of women in medieval times. We started in 500 AD and told some incredible stories. We left off with Marie de France. Now, about this time, we're at about 1200 AD with Marie de France, and the Magna Carta comes out. And just to give you a frame of reference of kind of how women are being thought about and treated and all that kind of thing, Magna Carta, of course, was written in 1215, and essentially it was a, a trying to be a document written by the upper class and the earls and the barons and the knights to the king, to King John, say, trying to limit his power, trying to say, look, there's a law above you. You've got to obey the law. You can't be above the law. It's really, really, really super important historically. And we use it in the Mission Driven Mom Academy in level two to talk about broken principles. So it's quite powerful in that way. But it does mention women three times. Um, it talks about them in kind of interesting ways. On the one hand, it defends them and supports them a little bit. And on the other hand, it kind of negates their opinion. So a couple of these first ones are on widows. And these knights and barons wanted their widows to be treated better by the king and by the law. They wanted them to be able to stay in their house until they were able to secure their their um, inheritance from their husband. And they didn't want there to be any trouble about their getting their inheritance. They didn't want there to be any trouble with their daughters getting their inheritance and what they were going to be paid when they married. They, just want, they didn't want the king to interfere with that. They wanted to be able to pass on wealth to their daughters and to their wives without making trouble for them. And this other one is really interesting. It says, no widow shall be compelled to marry so long as she wishes to remain without a husband. <laughs> so I guess they'd been forced to marry and the, these men were trying to protect their wives upon their death so that their wives didn't have to marry if they didn't want to, which is really kind of interesting that they would write that in. On the other hand, near the end, there's this other, there's this other point that they make where they say, no one shall be arrested or imprisoned on the appeal of a woman for the death of any person except her husband. So that kind of negates women having very much power to like turn someone in or say that they've murdered someone or done something wrong. If it involves her husband, then they have to listen to the wife, but if to the woman, but if it doesn't involve her husband, then I guess they have to have the witness of other men, not just a woman. So kind of interesting what's happening politically, governmentally in some of these same areas about the same time. Now we come upon Julian of Norwich. This is in the 13 to 1400s, a mystic visionary, and she's author of the masterpiece of religious literature called Revelations of Divine Love. 
She believed that she was dying. In fact, I read some selections of this. It's so fascinating. She begs God for a near-death experience or for a suffering so that she can see his divine power and draw closer to him. And that, that of course, really was a dominant uh, idea in medieval times that it was healthy and good for us to suffer because it brought us both closer to God. A different paradigm, a different belief system than we have today a little bit. But there's some truth in that. And so she was laid dying in her bed and received a number of visions from God, which she wrote down shortly afterwards and expanded on her original manuscripts later. She focused on God's message of compassion and love for all. And that's really important because it was somewhat contrary to this damning, powerful God that wanted to strike people down and the fear of God and all those kinds of things. She was sending this message out. She said God gave her visions and and told her she should share his love. She compared God's love to a mother's love, which accepts her children regardless of the mistakes that they make and loves them unconditionally. Her work was put forward, found and put forward in the 20th century, had a great influence on T.S. Eliot. She was known in her time for her counsel and influence, especially on later on Marjorie Kemp, who we'll talk about. And she said, all will be well and every manner of thing will be well in spite of how circumstances might appear. Another really fascinating woman is Christine de Pisan. 13 to 1400s, she in some ways is considered the first professional female writer in Europe. She was a counselor to kings and aristocracy. Her works were highly influential in her own time and continued to be in later centuries. And I want to make a point here that if everybody put women down, if every man was against the authority of women, first of all, and there are lots of other examples of powerful and influential women. I chose some of the ones that had good influence that were good moral women but there are others that were good and moral there are others that weren't that were powerful if everyone believed uniformly that women were always in fear and should never be listened to then then these women would not have been able to have the influence that they had so i just want to put that in context christine's writings would not have been popular in her time and place among the aristocracy and the leadership if they didn't see the truth in much of what she said Now, she was married to an aristocratic court secretary who died of the plague, and she didn't have any way to support herself, her children, and her elderly mother, so she started writing, and she was trying to support herself on her writing. Her dad, again, another example of of men believing in women, had encouraged her literary pursuits, had helped her get an education, and told her she was a great writer. She could read and write, and... um, and became a very influential writer. She wrote two works, which you can buy today, The Book of the City of Ladies and The Book of the Three Virtues or The Treasure of the City of, the, of, of Ladies. They're fascinating. I'll quote a few uh, things to you from them. But essentially, the first book, The Book of the City of Ladies, was her, she kind of put on paper her own intellectual journey to better understand the role of women. It's really a fascinating book. I'm sure it went out of favor and out of publication for a long time, but in her day it was well-read and respected. And it's interesting how she combats certain key beliefs in her time period about women and what they were capable of. The second is a hands-on practical advice manual 
for women uh, to help them care for their finances, their husbands, their estates, their children, and women, well, and people in general sought her advice because she was known to be so wise. So she starts this book out by talking about, this is the book of the city of ladies. She says, one day I was sitting alone in my study, surrounded by books of all kinds of subjects, devoting myself to literary studies, my usual habit. My mind dwelt at length on the weighty opinions of various authors whom I had studied for a long time. So she had all the great works. Now, remember, this is in 1400. So we've already had that literary recovering of ancient Greek works. They're more commonly read now. She has access to them and, and she's a great studier and thinker. And so she's reading all these works and it just hits her. She's reading this one particular one by Mathaeus and he's disrespecting women and it's making her think, now wait a minute, why is he saying all of this? And she starts thinking about all these other authors that she's read and how there's kind of so many of them talk about how women are just inferior. And she really loves God. She's a great believer in God and has a really fantastic relationship with him. And she's frustrated that this kind of seems to be the dominant opinion of men about women. And so she says, okay, I, I'm going to examine my own character and conduct. And she says, I could not see or realize how their claims could be true when compared to the natural behavior and character of women. She says, I was surrounded by women that were very moral and smart and interesting, who tried to lead good lives and do good things. And I could see that they were inferior to men, basically. But she considers herself, she goes on to say that she considers herself really simple and ignorant. And re she relied more on the judgment of others than her own judgment. She says, I finally decided that God formed a vile creature. As I was thinking this, a great unhappiness and sadness welled up in my heart, for I detested myself and the entire feminine sex as though we were monstrosities in nature. And in my lament, I spoke these words, Oh God, how can this be? How could it be that you could go wrong in anything? And she asks all these questions of God, basically like, how is it that everything that you create is good except women? How can that be? And that thought opens the door to what she goes on to reason through and discover for herself. And she eventually kind of finds her worth in God. But at the beginning, she was really heartbroken. She says, I spoke these words to God in my lament and a great deal more for a very long time in sad reflections and in my folly, considered myself most unfortunate because God had made me inhabit a female body in this world. And I think that's really fascinating because even though she goes through this work and, and she gives all the arguments and she reasons it through for herself and she has found her worth in God and she sees that women are equal to men eventually. In the beginning, because she didn't trust her own judgment, she really kind of wished she was a man. But her story continues that Lady Reason, Lady Rectitude, and Lady Justice come to her. In fact, on the ancient work, you can see pictures of like the, some of the original 
copies of this book, there's a drawing that was done, a painting of her in bed and these three women drawing her out of bed, kind of encouraging her to write these works and to share her thoughts. And so these Lady Reason says to her, we have come to vanquish from the world the error into which you have fallen. And so the rest of the work, she's going through dominant arguments in her day against, uh, against women, citing that women and men are not equal. She argues against those to help men and women see men and women as more equal. She says, I've come to announce an edifice built like a city wall, strongly constructed and well-founded, where no one will reside except all ladies of fame and women worthy of praise, for the walls of the city will be closed to those who lack virtue. So that's why it's called the Book of the City of the Ladies, is because Lady Reason came to her and helped her understand that they were going to build these walls for women of virtue to see their real value. So one of the first arguments that she goes over to show that men and women are equal is this ancient argument that man had fallen because of Eve. So men and women were evil now, thanks to a woman. But then she says, but wait a minute, we had a savior and a redeemer in Jesus because of a woman. Mary is the one that overcame the transgression of Eve. And so women far more made up for the mistake of Eve was a mistake, but the mistake of Eve really allowed us to come and, and have children and, and live here and do all these things. And so we do appreciate Eve for that. And Mary overcame those problems by giving birth to the Savior, etc. So she overcomes that uh, issue. And then she talks about women being educated. And Christine is like talking to her and it's kind of done as this dialogue in this conversation between Christine and these ladies. And she's still talking to lazy lady reason. And she says, I know a lot of men who think that women shouldn't be educated. What about that? They don't want their daughters, wives, or kin kinsmen to be educated. And then lady reason says to here, here you can clearly see that not all opinions of men are based on reason and that these men are wrong. Moral education amends and ennobles women. How can anyone think or believe that whoever follows good teaching or doctrine is the worse for it? And then she gives this example. She says there's examples in ancient history, but there's examples in this modern medieval history time of men who really think that women should be educated and support and help that happen. And she gives the example of Giovanni Andrea, who was a law professor and he had educated his daughter, Novella, and he would actually send her to the university to teach in his place. She was so beautiful, <laughs> it's funny. She was so beautiful, he didn't want people to see her, so she would stand behind a curtain so she didn't um, distract them with her beauty. But he wrote a book with her on law lectures and just saw her as very smart and capable and she was a teacher and a writer and he really promoted her education. And so then Reason goes on to say, see, can't you see that it's only foolish men that would believe this? And it's just because they're trying to keep women down and 
That's just kind of the nature of a lot of human beings. And she said, in fact, in your own case, Christine, it was actually your father who promoted your education and your mother who tried to keep you down. It was your mother who was the major obstacle who wanted you to, to just do skills and tasks around the house. And it was your father who gave you an education in the sciences. So that's really fascinating that in her own experience, it was her father who had been such a great support to her. And so it goes on. I just had these selections that I've given you some excerpts from. But really interesting stuff with Christine and the book of the City of the Ladies. And then the Treasury is all these anecdotes and advice. So something to look at. These kinds of things were being said all through history. They were said by some of the ancients. They were said by people in the medieval times. It's not as if in today's world we just suddenly woke up and we were the first people smart enough to think that men and women are equal. I guess that's one of the major points I want to make is that men could see that it wasn't fair, that women should be educated, and we'll do some more um, of those writings moving forward into, into history. We can see examples of men who educated their daughters. There's, um, I can't remember her name right now, but her father helped run the library at Alexandria, and she helped him with it, and he educated her. There's, there's many of these examples. Another woman from the 13 to 1400s is Marjorie Kemp. She was a Christian mystic who dictated her experiences and visions to create the first autobiography in English called the Book of Marjorie Kemp. She wanted these visions from God kept for mankind. She felt that they would benefit. And so even though she wasn't very literate, she dictated her experiences and had them written down and turned into a book. She was tried for heresy, but she was never convicted, and her devotion to God and belief in the truth of her visions made it impossible for her to keep quiet about her faith, and she often bore witness publicly. She visited Julian of Norwich, which we talked about earlier, for validation of her visions, and Julian gave her that validation. They were both visionary women who had positive influence through those writings. So the last one I want to talk about is Joan of Arc. Very, very popular woman from the medieval times, maybe the most popular. And of course, her experiences were incredible. There was a prophecy that a maid, a maiden would rise up and free France. And she saw herself as the fulfillment of that prophecy and had some incredible experiences as a young girl. This was in the 1400s. There had been the Hundred Years War and uh, she was so, so devout. She spent countless hours in the church and with the religious leaders and in prayer giving herself to, to God, devoting herself to him, asking what she could do. And she said that from an early age, angels appeared to her and she had divine guidance and instruction from God and from heavenly visitors who directed her path and told her what to do. And at a very young age, she felt called to do something about the war. She, she believed that God had told her to free France. And it came about. She did free France. And then, of course, they betrayed her. And she was handed over 
and went through a series of trials and then was put to death. I think she was burned at the stake is how she died. Now, one of the reasons that we know a lot about Joan of Arc is because the trial records were kept and they took lots and lots of notes. So we have a lot of details about where she came from and what her childhood was like because they just plied her with questions over and over and over again for long periods of time. And these court records were kept, these trial records. And one of the people who absolutely fell in love with her is Mark Twain. He, it, there's kind of a, I don't know if it's true or not, a story that he happened upon a few pages of a manuscript about her one day, like on the street or something, became intrigued, did more research, eventually read the trial records of Joan of Arc and is supposed to have said, kind of known to have said, that in his mind she was second only in greatness to Jesus Christ. He did all this extensive research and wrote a book, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. He wrote the book as if there's a, a page, a close friend of hers who knows her from childhood is telling her story and it's his narrative of her life. And so you get this first-hand account and it's done in kind of a novel form, but he's tried very hard to be very true to what we know about her life. It's, it's somewhat hero worshipy. You'll, you'll get some of that. And it, you, you, I, there were moments when I was like, okay, Mark Twain, okay, I get it. You adore her and think she's perfect. But very, very worth reading for many, many reasons. It's an incredible tribute to the power of faith and your relationship with God and prayer that can have such a profound impact on your life. It's incredible, her goodness, her chastity, her purity. She keeps herself very pure. It's incredible the positive influence she is on the people around her and how she elevates them. They become better because of their connection with her. It's just a book very worth reading. There's lots of books out there about her, but this is probably my favorite. And I want to just give you one little anecdote from the Mark Twain book that I do think has historical evidence. He is basically talking about how Jane, uh, Joan was able to tame the military leader that she ended up working closely with. They had to kind of vet her. She went through a whole series of like trials and background checks and all these things to prove that she was who she said she was and she had come to do what she said she was gonna do. And LaHire, was a great military leader who was sent, she was given an army and he was sent to help her, but it was made known to him that she was basically in charge and he was supposed to defer to her judgment and and do what she said. And I think he probably felt like that might not happen. He didn't really understand who she really was when he first arrived. So he gets there and the camp is just like a typical military camp. There's prostitutes around, there's lots of drinking and, um, you know, inappropriate stuff going on all over the place. 
and she knows that they need to clean it up. So Joan believes that she's on a mission for God and that in order for these men to serve God, that's what they're doing. This is a campaign for God to win back France and God has sent her on this errand and so they've got to be morally clean. So Lahire comes in, they have this introductory conversation. He takes to her, he really likes her, but she basically says to him, everyone has to go to the priest and confess and after that, they have to go to services twice a day. Oh, and by the way, we have to um, really modify the drinking to a very moderate level. And we have to kick all the prostitutes out. None of that can go on in this camp. This camp has to be dedicated to God and it's got to be morally pure. And he thinks she's absolutely insane. He fights her on it. Eventually, he realizes, you know, she's in charge. I've got to go along with what she says. And so she convinces him, talks him into it. They do get rid of the prostitutes. They do go to confession. They do go to services. And the camp gets cleaned up. And they get kind of spiritually purified for the battles ahead that they then subsequently win to everyone's great amazement. And it's incredible how Mark Twain writes about this incident. It's, it's really endears you to Joan. And I, I love that she's so principled and that her dedication to God means that she's got to create an army that's morally pure in order to, to vote this work to God because it's for him. And he needs his people in a position to be able to hear his voice and, and trust and lean on him. So those are some incredible stories of some awesome women from medieval times. And I hope that this two-part series about medieval women has been helpful for you to have some better insights about the way that women were thought about in the West in medieval times. It wasn't all bad. They were predominantly seen as an inferior sex, but many women were given many opportunities on the conviction of their faith and their courage and their purity. They were able to accomplish really incredible things and their works were respected even in their day and they were respected and listened to. So thanks so much for joining me for this podcast. Please continue to share it out and to tell your friends and please join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group where we have after the show discussions around this topic of feminism and so many others. Thanks so much for joining me and I will see you next time.